Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. On September 8, 2016, OSIRIS-REx will launch from Cape Canaveral. It will orbit the sun for a year, then use Earth's gravitational field to assist it on its way to the asteroid Bennu, utilizing a complex thruster array to match its speed, rendezvous with the ancient rock, and steal a sample and then return home. The name OSIRIS stands for Origins, Spectral Interpretation, Resource Identification, Security, Regolith Explorer, or OSIRIS-REx. But you really can't name a craft like this after the ancient Egyptian god of the afterlife and transition and not expect us to ruminate on it. A god torn to pieces and scattered across the cosmos by Set, forced to descend into the underworld, but not before conceiving a miraculous child with Isis, ensuring the birth of Horus, god of kings for ages to follow. Because what are asteroids but the scattered remnants of the building blocks that accreted into planetary form and eventually planetary life as we know it? They're shards of the nether age in our solar system, and in the case of the Bennu asteroid, a shard that has been witness to the solar system's birth, and a shard that might even bring death, or at least phoenix-like rebirth to life on Earth. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Christian Sager. We have a special episode for you today where we are going to be talking about the NASA OSIRIS-REx mission. Uh, for the first part of the episode, Robert and I are going to present to you the information about this mission, uh, and in particular, asteroid Bennu, which is traveling to. Uh, and then the latter half, we were lucky enough to get Dr. Amy Simon to do an interview with us. She's a senior scientist at NASA on planetary atmospheres, and she's working on the OSIRIS-REx mission, and she gave us some really good answers to some complex questions. Yeah, and you know, we in the intro here we hit a little bit on the uh, the Egyptian mythology tie-in yeah. of both words. You know, one is the god of the of transition and the underworld, and the other is kind of the Binu is the the name of kind of a, an Egyptian phoenix creature. So that the the question that instantly enters everyone's mind, I think, when you encounter acronyms like this, is. Uh, is it really as cool as Osiris Rex sounds? Because that <laughs> right. sounds amazing. Osiris Rex sounds like what the next dinosaur in Jurassic World yeah. 2 will be called. Yeah. And I think, but I think the answer is yes, this is a really fascinating mission. I think it actually holds up rather well to the, the, the mythic expectations yeah. that are presented by the name. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's why we're discussing it here on the show. So let's start off by getting into Bainu. What is this thing? You may have heard about it recently because in the last two to three days before we're recording this, there has been a flurry on the internet, especially on science sites of, oh, is this asteroid going to hit Earth in, uh, like a century or two, right? Right. And then the, 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 the counter, uh, headlines that are like, no, stupid, this uh, <laughs> asteroid is not definitely going to hit Earth. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because in those headlines, you see the, our fear rising up about the threat of near Earth objects. And on one hand, I feel like, People should be more fearful. Yeah. But people should, I mean, more to the point, people should be more aware of the long-term risk posed by near-Earth objects. Like, it should be a talking point for 
for all uh, political candidates and not just uh, transhumanist candidates. Ah, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, especially, uh, I don't know if you remember, but earlier this year, there was a meteoroid caught on film, like on camera. Mm-hmm. Somebody whipped out their smartphone and caught one crashing into Earth, and it, it killed a person. And it was, wow, like just seeing something like that that was just so real, r- really jaw-dropping. Uh, and this is, I mean, that was tiny compared to Bennu. Bennu is, uh, let me see here, 1,650 feet wide or 500 meters. Yeah. But uh, according to the people at NASA, we don't need to worry because that is uh, well below their calculations for what would cause like a mass extinction event. Yeah, this isn't going to be to the 20, till the 22nd century, so there's plenty of time for us to not worry about it. And it's going to be a 1 in 2,500 chance that it'll impact the earth but but more to the point it's just the the general idea i think of, yeah. of like being aware of near earth objects and the threats they pose learning more about those objects uh so that we 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 can potentially intercede and protect ourselves i think that is a, a very important issue for for humans in general. Yeah, and when we talk to uh, Dr. Amy Simon later in this episode, you know, sh- she makes it clear this isn't why they chose this mm-hmm. particular asteroid, but yes, planetary defense is a part of their mission. It is something that the people at NASA think about. Yeah. So, what do we know about this asteroid? Well, near-Earth asteroid is a is a weird term, but it's it was formally called <laughs> it had a very generic name, 1999 RQ36. <laughs> uh, and as uh, Amy tells us later on, they renamed it Bainu after a contest with students coming up with names. To yeah, and uh, the and I and I think this one won in large part because it ties into the the Egyptian themes present in Osiris. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and what's important about it is it's carbon rich, uh, and because of that, it may contain clues to the origins of life. In the universe and especially here on Earth, uh, it's thought to be the remnant of the building blocks that formed planets. So it might contain natural resources like water, organics or metals. Uh, and I realized as we were talking to Amy, because she she reminded us that it's so black, mm-hmm. it's blacker than like black ink here on Earth. It only reflects three percent of the light that comes at it. So this is really I mean, if it's made of metal, it is the blackest of metals. It is yeah. the most metal thing in space. Like imagine wearing all black on a really hot day. You're getting yeah. a sense of the uh, of the situation that's going here and the resulting uh, Yarkovsky effect. Mm. That gr- that gradually pushes it, and this gradually um, changes the the orbit of this uh, asteroid over time, pushes it, uh, causes it to to migrate until uh, it encounters uh, the gravitational uh, resonance of Saturn, and the regular tugging effect of, effect here eventually pushes Bennu into the inner solar system, where it experiences close encounters with Venus and Earth, encounters that then pull apart the rubble, kind of reshape it, turn it inside out, because it's worth m- mentioning here that. It's dark, yes, but it's also just kind of a loose collection of boulders and rock and dust. And there's actually a theory, uh, I don't know if you ran across this one in the, the NASA materials, that a, a billion years ago, the Bennu was part of a larger protoplanet. Ah. And then it got shattered by a space collision with another asteroid, and this is just kind of the, the, the rough uh, remnants of that. Yeah, the theory that I read was that it was thought to have been the material of a nebula, and that was disrupted by an exploding star. Oh, yeah, well, similar. that was the original. Yeah, basically, if you go back far enough, about 4.5 billion years, you just have a stellar nursery of hydrogen, helium, and dust. And this is the birthplace of our sun, the surrounding solar system. 
a supernova of a nearby star, stirs all of this into action, spinning off the accretion disk that births the star. And, uh, yeah, and so everything else is in this mix as well. And this uh, this asteroid Bennu is essentially a you know a callback to uh, these earlier. Yeah, ages. and the idea is essentially right, like that it's just bits of dust that were like super flash heated together into this molten rock that, like you you refer to, it's sort of like a rubble pile. They yeah. think it's not like one big rock; it's just like a bunch of stuff fused together, uh, and it's being propelled by the Yarkovsky effect that you mentioned earlier. Now, okay, just real quick, some numbers on the whole whether it's going to hit us thing or not. NASA does officially classify it as, quote, potentially dangerous, but there's only a 0.037% chance that it will strike Earth, according to their calculations. So, like, if you think about this in terms of, say, Batman's rogue gallery, (laughs) this is not the Joker, um, (laughs) but this is also maybe not, what's the Vincent Price character, Egghead? Uh, yeah. It's yeah. not Egghead. Nice. It would be somewhere. I, you tell me. You're the, the comics guy. Whew, a real rare Batman villain like that. It that poses be, a threat, the, but not a complete yeah. non-threat. Um, one that I would immediately go to would be a character named Anarchy. And the Anarchy is spelled <laughs> with a K. It's a teen, teenager mm-hmm. who's just running around Gotham causing chaotic anarchy. <laughs> yeah, so that's pretty low on Batman's rogue gallery. That's the, not one of his priorities. He lets Robin handle that. Right. But if that, but if that uh, particular villain is just going to be close enough for study, yeah. uh, then it might be a way to uh, additionally learn how you handle villains and wh- how villains are put together, right? Yeah, and it, so according to Scientific American, if Bennu did hit Earth, even if we did get within that very, very tiny window of probability, yes, it would devastate a local area, but it, it's not going to wipe out civilization. It's something we would know is coming. We would be able to evacuate people. It is to do something like on a large level... Uh, that would po- possibly cause mass extinction, the asteroid has to be at least 0.6 miles wide or about one kilometer. So Bainu's nowhere near that. Um, don't worry about it no matter what headlines you see this week. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will dive into the mission itself, OSIRIS-REx. Okay, so we're back. Now, OSIRIS-REx, what is this all about? What's the goal? Let's start there. It's Mm -hmm. a spacecraft, but let's start with why they're building this spacecraft. What's the whole point of it, right? Uh, They want to take this spacecraft to Bennu and bring back at least 2.1 ounces or around 4 pounds of sample soil and rock from Bennu to bring back to Earth. And it's the first mission to ever try this with an asteroid. Right. And I want to stress that in the, the, uh, the, the name itself, that's the Rex, Regolith yeah. Explorer. And that's all about documenting the regolith, the, the layer of loose outer material at the sampling site, uh, and, uh, you know, scaling down from there. So you might be asking yourself, well, why do these, uh, scientists just want to get this little tiny piece of soil and rock? bring it back here, what good is that going to do us, right? Uh, well, the answer is they think it'll help us investigate how planets formed and how life began because of, you know, that origin story that we gave you earlier about Bennu and its uh, history going so far back. You know, there may be traces there. Yeah, there was a period of time where the asteroid, these asteroids are just like pushed back into the, uh, the inner solar system and they're just crashing into everything, crashing into Earth. And this could have been a way that some of these vital materials that would uh, lead to uh, life on Earth might have uh, gotten here. Yeah. 
And so this mission, it's the mission is uh, there's so many people contributing to it. Mm-hmm. There's NASA. There's several universities involved. Uh, Lockheed Martin built some of the materials that are on the spacecraft. But it's managed out of NASA's Goddard Space. Space Flight Center, which is up in Greenbelt, Maryland, for us here in America. Uh, in fact, the How Stuff Works team visited there, what, I want to say like six months ago, and shot a bunch of videos uh, just talking to different scientists there about the missions that they were performing. Uh, the thing is, too, about this is like they can look at Bainu with a telescope, and they have lots of interpretations about what its composition is. Uh, but they want to be able to prove that. So part of sending the spacecraft there is also to confirm or maybe deny some of their interpretations and observations from a telescope. Uh, so they're going to be doing things like measuring the effect of sunlight on the orbit of the asteroid. And we've mentioned this before. Let me clarify. This is the Yarkovsky effect. What it is is when the asteroid absorbs sunlight, then re-emits that sunlight as heat, and it gets a slight push. And Amy talks with us about that later, but can do all sorts of things that change the trajectory of the asteroid. So I think we've hit on all of the the key points in the name of the craft. We have the origins, the uh, the spectral interpretation, resource identification, security, and that actually refer that actually deals with the measure of the measuring the effect of the sunlight on the orbit and the Arkosky effect. Yeah. And then the regolith explorer. Now regolith was a term I wasn't familiar with. It means the layer of loose outer material that's on the asteroid that they're going to sample basically, mm-hmm. right? That's that's why it's a regolith explorer. Here's the real quick down and dirty stats on the spacecraft spacecraft of Osiris Rex. Uh it's twenty point two five feet long, eight feet wide, and ten point three three feet tall. So it's no small thing. Uh it weighs a thousand nine hundred and forty pounds, but that's without fuel. When you put fuel into this thing, it weighs four thousand six hundred and fifty pounds. They're also going to have two solar panels on it to generate wattage to power the thing as well as the fuel that's in there. And in addition, it has this wide array of communication systems so that it can relay back to Earth both its scientific findings and what they refer to as its health status. So basically, you know, whether it's malfunctioning or not. Uh, so they perform a lot of detailed tests on these systems to make sure that they survive the journey. That's something we talk to Amy about later, but everything from vibrational testing to heat and cold, uh, and then, um, uh, loud, loud noises. They literally blast these things with air horns. Yeah. They, they really put it through hell because that's, that's mm-hmm. kind of what, uh, uh, leaving the planet is, amounts to. And the reason why it has to have so, uh, many communication systems on board is that it's going to be communicating not just with, NASA, but with three different facilities on Earth, one in Goldstone, California, one in Spain, and one in Canberra, Australia. Uh, they each have huge 230-foot diameter dishes for communication, so they can talk to things like this uh, up to the size of a pizza box. Now, uh, OSIRIS-REx is much bigger than that, obviously, given the stats I just gave you, but you know the communication systems on board might not be. All right, so what kind of payload are we we talking about here? They've built a lot of different little, I'm going to just call them gizmos and widgets, Mm -hmm. to put on board this spacecraft for its mission. Uh, And the first one, the the one that they seem the most proud of, there's a lot of material on NASA's site about this, is called Oviers. 
and it is the Osiris Rex visible and infrared spectrometer. Uh, so basically, this is going to look at the asteroid's spectral signature and detect whether there's organics or other mineral materials there. It measures visible and near infrared light that's reflected and emitted from Bennu, and it's key. It is key to their search for organics. This is because minerals and other materials have unique, what they refer to as fingerprints within these spectrums. So they'll hopefully be able to see these things even before they, they actually uh, touch down for that brief second with their arm. Uh, it only operates, this is Ovier's, not Osiris-Rex, at 10 watts. Uh, it's less power than your standard household light bulb, and they built it with no moving parts to reduce the risk of malfunction. So this is like a pretty pared-down invention for them to measure these things. And to avoid it getting overheated by uh, all the light and thermal radiation that's going to be bombarding them while they're out there, the whole thing has been anodized to scatter light around it and make it resistant to corrosion as well. Now, I have to admit, when it comes to space missions... Um I always return to like the, the eight year old me. Yeah. And, uh, and, and assembling Lego kits. And, and maybe part of that is also, also that I'm now uh, assembling Lego kits with, with my son. But I get excited about little robot arms. Oh, uh, um, yeah. Any kind of grabber, any ty- type of, uh, you know, um, fine manipulation device on a lander or a spacecraft. And there is a really cool one here with a very fun name. <laughs> it's called Tagasm. <laughs> or tagasm or tagasm. Tagasm. There's definitely an, an asm in there. Uh, the touch and go sample acquisition mechanism. So we kind of joke with Amy later on when we talk to her about all these acronyms mm-hmm. that NASA comes up with. And she was a good sport about it and explained why. Uh, but yeah, so the arm, it has a sample return capsule that's attached to it to protect the sample that with both a heat shield and parachutes upon reentry. And that's important because we, we talk about, um, planetary contamination as a possibility with Amy. So they really want to seal this thing up tight. The Mm -hmm. arm reaches out, grabs it, seals it within this capsule, and then keeps it safe all the way back to its journey to Earth through our our atmosphere. And then they're going to put it into a very high security laboratory yeah. here on earth because the the sample retrieval aspects of this and we get into this a little bit in the interview with her is just amazing here yeah uh, this is it's quite a feat to to send this device reach out into the void with your technology uh pinch off a little bit of rock and bring it back yeah yeah i mean we've never done it before it sounds it sounds easy when you think about like sci-fi type stuff right like mm-hmm. like just at your average summer blockbuster movie like if you saw something like this happen in it you'd go yeah sure yeah, we, yeah it happens all the time we can do but, that but no we haven't done it yet before. Yeah, not uh, not in, in the uh, the exact way that this one is carrying it out. So they have another really high tech uh, acronym <laughs> uh, device on board this ship. It's called OCAMS, uh, and this is the camera suite of three cameras that are going to allow them to globally image and map Bainu. There's also a laser altimeter on board that they'll use to measure the distance between the craft and Bennu as it gets closer. Uh, now, the point of these tools is to help them map the asteroid and recon for possible sampling sites as they get closer. This is so detailed that they can spot individual pebbles on its surface. Now, remember, Bennu... We referred to it before as just like a pile of rubble in space, right? Yeah. It's not smooth. It's a lumpy, irregular shape. So it's going to need this kind of data before they approach it. 
They also have a thermal emission spectrometer that just provides them, you know, standard temperature information. And then this is cool. MIT and Harvard students and some faculty got together and put together an X-ray imaging spectrometer that will observe the X-ray spectrum around Bengu as well. So there's some involvement there. And, you know, I'm going to add this here. I was going to save it for the end of the episode. But you mentioned, uh, you know, the fun part about playing with Legos and kind of building uh-huh. your own thing. So one of the project scientists on the OSIRIS-REx mission, his name's Jason Dworkin, and there's a video game called Kerbal Space Program. I hadn't heard about it before this, but it's basically like a a simulator for building uh, devices that you would launch into space and see how they react, right? He presented to the fans of the video game in their forum, he said, hey, I got a challenge for you. Can you build a replica of OSIRIS-REx and successfully return an asteroid sample to Earth? And he himself tried to do it over and over again, and he didn't have very good results. Uh, this, the game essentially simulates what it's like running a space agency huh. on like a, a, a sort of like alternate version of Earth. Uh, and he found that within the game, he couldn't get the spacecraft to launch using the realistic matches, uh, sorry, masses that they're using in real time here on Earth. But still, he said, hey, I want to see you guys do it. And there was a big response and lots of people have been attempting this in this video game. Huh. So this is a very, um, fact-based, science-based video game, I'm guessing. That's what it sounded okay. like, yeah. So you wouldn't be able to pull off what what I instantly think about in, the, in this kind of unreal reality would be to actually put the ghost of Wu-Tang rapper ODD, <laughs> a.k.a. Osiris. Yeah, he would power it. The, <laughs> instead of the Yarkovsky effect, it's the big baby Jesus effect. <laughs> that would be pretty cool. Uh Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, they, they've got so many collaborators on yeah. this thing. They've got uh, MIT, the multiple universities that contributed to the research, NASA, Lockheed Martin, other companies. It's uh, we, we ask her about this later, but I can't imagine being the project manager on this thing, just trying to keep everybody in uh, communication and, and, and uh, keep this on track. Yeah, indeed. Now, we've uh, already touched a little bit on the itinerary. It's going to launch September 8th, 2016 at 7.05 p.m. Uh, Eastern uh, Daylight Time. It will be uh, positioned on the nose of an Atlas uh, V rocket for launch. And uh, it's going to orbit the sun for a year using Earth's gravitational fields to help assess its journey to Bennu. The only thing that I like immediately think of when I hear something like that is the old thing they do in Star Trek whenever they travel back in time and they like mm-hmm. whip themselves oh, yeah, around do. the yeah. sun and s- somehow that works. Yeah, and they go back in time. Yeah. <laughs> this one will not be going back in time, though it's traveling through space time as everything is. Yeah, so, yeah totally. If you want to get technical about it, yes. Uh, it's not going to reach Bainu though until 2018 and it's going to approach in August of that year. It's got rocket thrusters that will help slow it down over the course of that year and then it will briefly touch it, like very briefly to retrieve that sample. So it's just going to come up very slowly, touch it, grab a sample with that arm and then move away. And it's, uh, the arm is built to release nitrogen gas that will stir up the rocks so that the surface sample will be easier to grab. Uh, and it has about three attempts worth of nitrogen on it, but obviously they're hoping, you know, just right on yeah. the first try, we'll get it. All right. So that's 2018. Yeah. Uh, then when do, when do we get it back? 2021 is when it's going to have a window for departure and then it's going to return to earth in 2023. Uh, and as we talk about uh, with Amy, the sample will come back 
It will be taken to the Utah Test and Training Range where it will be studied. And then after it's vigorously studied, probably for a couple of years, it will then be moved to NASA's Johnson Space Flight Center in Houston. So get ready. I mean, <laughs> uh, mar- mark your calendars because that might be when it comes back. And then we'll do another episode. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll talk, we'll talk about how everything uh, panned out. Yeah, it's assuming I'm still alive. I don't know. 2023 feels like a long ways away. I know. You start looking at, uh, that's one of the fascinating things about these missions, right? Yeah. Is they're, they're long form missions. Yeah. And I guess that's always been the case, really. I mean, uh, look back to, to, to any of the, the, the large scale mega projects uh, in space. Uh, you know, some of the earlier ones definitely had a more, um, Accelerated time frame in many respects, but yeah. still things like uh, like the the Voyager and Pioneer missions. Oh yeah, those were yeah. those were in it for the long haul. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I would imagine that if you're on these teams too, you have to think in longitudinal terms like that too. As even in in terms of staffing, right? Mm-hmm. Like like some of the staff members may be older now and may not be expecting to be on the team when it comes back. Yeah, they may be retired by then. So that's what we've got for you on Osiris. Those are the general facts. That's the plan, the mission, the itinerary, all the stuff that's on board it. Now we're going to talk to Dr. Amy Simon, and she's going to fill us in on the more complicated scientific matters behind the mission. What is it about Bennu that makes the team think that it may contain clues to the origins of life? So when we were proposing the OSIRIS-REx mission, you know, we had a choice of hundreds of thousands of asteroids to pick from. And the reason that Bennu stuck out in the first place is, for one thing, it's a very, very dark asteroid. It's extremely black. It only reflects about 3% of the sunlight that, that hits it. Um, so, you know, if you look around your room at black things, at the blackest paint, at your ink toner, um, that's probably still about 5 6% reflectance. So it's even blacker than that. And the reason that color is so important is that things that are black tend to have a lot of carbon on them. And most of the building blocks of life, amino acids, um, involve hydrocarbons. And so we want to find something that has a lot of carbon on it because that's our best chance of looking for those building blocks. And so that's why it was particularly interesting, this asteroid. Um, it was also nice because this asteroid is an Earth-crossing asteroid. It's a near-Earth asteroid, so it's easier to get to than some of the ones farther out in the solar system. Um, and, you know, it, it's just an interesting object because it does cross the Earth's path. And so this is the type of thing we think back in the formation of the planets and Earth that might have helped put those hydrocarbons and things that we needed for life here. So that's why we want to study this particular asteroid. Okay, so so to clarify, you mean... Asteroids like this potentially impacted with Earth bringing uh, materials like this here? That's right. We we certainly know that at various points in the solar system history and the formation of the planets that all these bodies were floating around and a lot of them would have hit the surfaces of the planets as they were forming. Um, and we think comets brought water, for example. But we think that asteroids in particular, because those are the primitive leftover pieces from forming the solar system, will tell us about those things that hit very early on. Okay. Uh, so one of the things that I read about in the fact sheets and the research that NASA's put up online about this mission was that you're hoping that this will affect the future of space exploration as well because you may rely on the materials that are found on asteroids like this. Can you explain that a little bit further? 
Sure. So as we want to go farther out in the solar system, particularly with people, uh, we run into the problem that you can't bring everything with you that you need because humans require a lot of resources, water, for example. Um, so what we want to do is study these objects that are on the way to more distant places and see what's on their surfaces. So, for example, if there was a big cache of water ice, that's something that a mission could go pick up and bring its water along the way instead of having to carry everything from launch all the way out. Got it. Okay. So we'd like to look for those resources. Okay. And and so I'm imagining that you would either have uh, previously identified these asteroids as water sources through telescopic means or maybe with a spectrometer like, on, like is on OSIRIS-REx? Well, ideally, we would have mapped out a, a whole bunch of near-Earth asteroids so that we know those were great stopping points, essentially, you know, gas stations on the way. Um, but the reality is we won't be able to send a mission to every possible asteroid. So what we can also do is look at the class of asteroid. So from Earth-based observations, we've been able to put asteroids in different categories. And so if we go to one and realize this category tends to have a lot of water, that's probably a good stopping uh, point. So I, this is a kind of a, an oddball question, but uh, I was going through all the literature about uh, this mission and, and all the devices that are part of its payload. And I have to ask, why is it that NASA loves acronyms so much? Is there a specific kind of, you know, work operating procedure that makes them useful for your classification systems? So that's that's kind of a funny question. Um, there's no official policy that says everything has to be an acronym. Okay. Um, but I was thinking about this, and I think there's two different categories of why this happens. And one is, of course, that we like catchy names. Yeah. You know, in, in early missions, Apollo, Gemini, those had obvious names. But, you know, as scientists and engineers, we p- tend to be pretty practical when we name things. And so the, the names get very complicated yeah. very quickly. And so that's sort of the practical reason for doing an acronym is that, we can take something that, you know, would take forever to spell out and say every time we say it, condense it down into an acronym and then just use that as a word going forward. So right. that's kind of what you're seeing. And then if it happens to be catchy at the same time, even better, two for one. So whose job is it to do that? Is it like somebody sitting down and is, has come up with the long name and they just make it into an acronym or they try to find like, like, for instance, Osiris obviously has some symbolic meaning to it. Is there like a... I don't know, like some kind of uh, public relations team that works together with you on that? Um, no, a lot of times early on, the, the names like Osiris, you know, the science team comes up with it or the principal investigator does. Okay. Uh, but sometimes we do have naming contests. Um, Bennu, for example, was actually part of a contest where students got to write in what they thought it should be named and why. And, you know, they could have chosen an acronym. In this case, they picked something along the same, uh, you know, mythology as Osiris. So it worked out very well. But uh, there's no, like I said, no official policy. And, and, you know, we have fun with it. Cool. Yeah, that sounds great. Now, there are a lot of outside partners involved in this mission, universities, companies, students, and uh, many of NASA's own separate units. How do you manage the project between so many entities? Yeah, that can be pretty complicated. Um, The reason, you know, there's so many entities in the first place is this is a rather big mission, and there are so many parts to it. So any one group probably couldn't handle the whole thing by themselves. So you bring in the experts for each different area. Uh, the entire mission gets ma- managed by NASA Goddard, and so our folks are in charge of making sure everything keeps running. And then on the science end, the, the mission is really managed by University of Arizona. So they're in charge of making sure that we're going to do all the right science and that all the instruments are going to meet their requirements. So it's it's even a little bit of a distributed management, actually, just to keep it all running and all the parts going smoothly. Uh, so getting back to you were talking about how 
heavily carbon-based Bennu is. Can you talk us through how it is that you interpret what the asteroid's composition is just based on telescopic observations? And then when OSIRIS-REx get the, gets there, how will the spectrometer observations either confirm or refute the interpretations you've made from telescopes? So with telescope observations, even though it is an Earth-crossing asteroid, it doesn't get that close to us. So when we observe it from a ground-based telescope, we don't see the surface in detail. And so we'll get, say, for example, spectrum or imaging in different colors, and we can get some sense of what's probably on the surface. Again, that this object's very black. It probably has carbon. But what we can't see is the very fine composition. So if there is that little pocket of hydrocarbons or water or some other mineral that we're interested in. We can't see that from the ground-based observations because we're not really resolving the surface. We just don't have that kind of spatial resolution. So when we get there with our spectrometers, we're going to map out the entire surface. And so, for example, if there's small craters or there's little pockets of, of soil and regolith that are really rich in some mineral, we'll see that when we can't see that from the Earth-based observation. So it's kind of taking that really distant view and zooming in now. And now we're going to look at it very up close and try to find those little pockets of, of interesting material. Okay. So I'm particularly interested in the testing. I watched a video that I think you you might have been featured in actually talking about um, the spaceship, the sp- sorry, the spacecraft and how it's going to survive its journey and the vibration tests you've put it through. But through other research we've done here at How Stuff Works, uh, I know about like creating really loud air horns to test uh, space machinery. So what other stuff have you done to torture this thing to make sure that it can survive its journey? Yes, we, we torture these spacecraft and the instruments pretty hard, um, in part because, you know, they have to survive the launch, and once they're out there, we can't go back and fix them. And so what we do is, um, this is a case where we have these crazy test procedures written up where we're going to test everything to the limits we think it's going to see in space, and then a little bit beyond that. And so one of the first things we do is vibration testing. And in that case, what we do is basically we're going to shake the instrument or the spacecraft as hard as we expect to see it launch, because that's typically your your biggest vibration source. It's that, that huge launch vehicle. So we'll shake it really hard and make sure nothing falls off, nothing breaks, uh, everything is still working. So that's that's one of the critical tests that we do. Um, another one we do is is basically electromagnetic interference. So we want to make sure that none of the different instruments or spacecraft systems are going to interfere with each other. And so we'll basically blast it with different uh, types of electromagnetic radiation and make sure nothing breaks. And so that's probably one you don't hear as much about. Make sure the electronics don't get affected by each other, essentially. Yeah. Um, We do the thermal testing. That one's actually quite interesting, thermal vacuum testing. And so, you know, we take things to very extremely cold temperatures, hundreds of degrees below zero. And most people would probably believe that about space, that it gets that that cold. But what they don't probably consider is that we also take it to, you know, 400 degrees above zero. Right. um, Because things also get very hot in space. And that's because you're directly exposed to the sun with no atmosphere in between. So we don't tend to think about those temperatures here on Earth, but that atmosphere protects you from cold and hot. Yeah. And so... We take it at, you know, ridiculously cold temperatures and extremely hot temperatures, and we make sure, again, nothing breaks. We have, you know, special epoxies and seals and things like that on different parts of the spacecraft and instruments. So you want to make sure that those things aren't going to be affected by the temperature. So, you know, we do this in stages. You'll do one of these tests, um, for example, uh, this thermal test, and then you'll take it to vibration, and then you'll take it back to the thermal test. So we do it a couple different ways to make sure none of these things have affected any part of the spacecraft. Okay. Wow. So that's 
yeah, that's like years of work, I would assume, doing all of that testing and making sure that it can survive all those scenarios. It is. And when, you know, this testing is fairly complicated to get to those cold temperatures. We use liquid nitrogen and in some cases liquid helium even. Um, and that sort of test is, is fairly complicated and expensive. So it's not something that you just do during normal work hours. Right. You have to do this testing 24-7 because when you're in the chamber and running those things, you don't want to stop the test. So, so not only is it long, it's also, you know, very long hours. We have people working overnight shifts to do this testing. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That I, remember reading about one of the air horns that the European Space Agency has and it could just like absolutely annihilate a human being if you were exposed to it. So I'm always Yeah, we have warning lights all over the place during testing. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> all right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Dr. Amy A. Simon. Hey, everybody, you know the feeling you get when you can get things done with just one click of your mouse. It can't get more convenient than that. And now you can even get your mailing and shipping done without leaving your desk, thanks to Stamps.com. Stamps.com turns your PC or Mac into your own personal post office that never closes. Talk about convenient. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your computer and printer. Then just hand your mail off to the mail person or drop it in a mailbox, and you'll never have to go to the post office again. We use Stamps.com here in the HowStuffWorks office when we need to send out the odd bit of merch or correspondence, and we want you to try it as well. So right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code STUFF, S-T-U-F-F, for this special offer. You'll get a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com right now before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in STUFF. That's Stamps.com. Enter STUFF and start mailing things. So the the planetary defense angle of the mission has received a lot of attention recently due to, frankly, hysterical reports uh, in the media about uh, Bennu's uh, slim chance of hitting Earth in, I believe, the 22nd century. Uh, How big of a factor is that in this mission? And can you explain to our audience why it is a ultimately a slim uh, chance? Right. So, you know. It was not a deciding factor in which asteroid we went to. Um, it is an Earth-crossing asteroid, and it turns out it does have currently about a 1 in 2,700 chance um, of impacting. But what people need to understand is how we come up with that number. And so when an asteroid's first discovered, we have one point of data where it was in the sky. And to actually make it a discovery, we need a second point, so we follow it up. Um, we take those two points, or three points, however few we have, and we actually run it through a model, assuming all the gravity we know about from the planets and the sun, and we run it forward. And we basically see when it would cross the Earth's um, orbit at the same time the Earth is nearby. And we put error bars on that, and that's how we come up with a number. And basically what happens is going forward, people take more and more observations. And so every once in a while, you'll hear about an asteroid that has a 1 in 100 chance, 1 in 200 chance of hitting us. And then we take some more observations, and suddenly it's 1 in a million. And it's because these things don't move in a straight line, right? So so we need more observations to basically fill in that curve and figure out where it's going to go. But there's one other factor that we don't know about, and that's how the asteroid is reacting to being pushed by sunlight, Oh, and right. So, and this is the Yarkovsky effect? Right, the Yarkovsky effect, which is actually kind of complicated where you have sunlight, and in this case, the, the photons coming off the sun act as particles. So they exert a pressure. They're pushing on the asteroid in one direction. But especially these very black asteroids, they heat up. Now they're also rotating. So as it turns and it's cooling off, it radiates to space. Well, now it's going to get pushed in a different direction. Yeah. And so it's a very, very, very tiny effect, but it adds up over a century. 
And that's a tiny little tweak on that orbit that's really hard to quantify. And so that's one of the goals of our mission is to actually measure that effect, be able to look at the incoming and outgoing radiation and figure out how much is that torque, because that, that's one big unknown in a lot of our models of these asteroid trajectories. It was kind of fascinating to me, Amy, because uh, you know I spent time researching all about the mission, and then it wasn't until after I had read probably for like three hours about your mission that I Googled asteroid Bennu, and just every news story that came up was like, oh my God, this asteroid may hit Earth, and you know, and and it just was so interesting to me that to see how the media had absolutely like blown this so out of proportion for a good clickbaity yeah. headline. It, it does happen, but but again, typically, and you know, we we as scientists report the numbers, and what people do with those numbers is always you know hard to hard to predict, I guess, but. Sure. Um, Again, they tend to come out with with a very a higher number, you know, one in three thousand chance. But at, if you looked at the uncertainty on that, it's huge. And as the uncertainty comes down, you know, it becomes that one in a million probability. So, you know, we're we're again just reporting numbers, and people don't necessarily understand how we interpret that. But as we get more information, typically that chance goes way down. So one last question, and this is kind of a weird one. But I'm curious, is is the OSIRIS-REx team at all concerned about the hypothetical sort of science fiction possibility of planetary contamination from the sample being brought back to Earth from Bennu? That's actually a very good question. Um, so when we have Mars missions, we worry about forward contamination. We don't want to bring Earth stuff to Mars, and which would basically make it difficult for us to interpret anything we found on Mars. In this case, because that surface has been exposed, you know, for, um, you know, many millions, billions of years, we're not too worried about Earth contamination, although we do have a requirement on our spacecraft to keep it very, very clean because, again, we want to interpret anything we see or find there. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, coming back, so that's, you know, backwards contamination to Earth is important on every sample return mission. And so this actually goes into a level four biohazard lab. It'll be at uh, basically a sealed container. And it won't be opened until it's in a very special safe lab, uh, not because we're worried about space microbes or anything really, but mostly we don't want to contaminate our sample. Sure. Um, but we we do have requirements on how the sample is handled. And there is a whole planetary protection office at NASA that's dedicated to this topic and tells us what we must do to make sure that we don't have contamination in either direction. Oh, okay. Wow. I thought that this was just maybe some kind of thing that I had uh, cooked up in my own head that would be like a problem, but it seems like it's a very realistic thing that you have your best people working on. Oh, absolutely. You know, and again, I wouldn't classify it as a problem so much as we, well, we yeah. do have people that that worry about such things and, and have very uh, strict protocols and procedures in place just yeah. even to ensure the integrity of the science. That's great. Uh, now, in terms of of uh, missions that have essentially, you know, reached out into space and brought back material samples, uh, just to give uh, everyone a little, little more scope. Like, how does that, how does this fit in with the, with the collection of samples? Like, how, how many different samples roughly have been brought back uh, from um, asteroids or the moon, et cetera? So uh, during the Apollo years, we brought back quite a few moon rocks. So that's that's a pretty big cache of, of samples right there. But in that case, you know, we had astronauts who could pick them up and bring them back. So we could bring back, um, I want to say on the order of 100 kilograms of rocks. I'm not sure the exact number. But in terms of actually doing this robotically, that's been a lot more of a challenge because you have to figure out how you're going to pick these things up. 
and so we have samples from the Stardust mission, which essentially used what's called aerogel to catch dust grains that flew into the spacecraft, um, so very tiny, tiny amounts. Uh, and Genesis also did something similar. And then the Japanese mission, Hayabusa, brought back some grains from an asteroid surface. But again, it was kind of just what they could capture without touching. Uh, this is the first mission that's actually going to try to touch the surface and pick up a pretty big sample. And so we can bring up, we have a requirement for 60 grams, but we can pick up to two kilograms of soil and rocks, of small rocks. And so, you know, that's our goal is to have a pretty big sample. This will be the first time we've done that robotically. All right, Amy. Well, thank you for joining us here on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Uh, we really enjoyed uh, getting to uh, pick your brain a bit about this, uh, this just really fascinating mission. Well, thank you so much for having me on. All right, so there you have it, an introduction to this fascinating mission, OSIRIS-REx. We got to discuss the, the craft, the destination, and we got to talk to an expert about it. And if you want more information about it, uh, if you want to just really get into the nitty-gritty and just follow the OSIRIS-REx odyssey, yeah. you can head on over to asteroidmission.org. Yeah, they have tons of materials on there. NASA's public relations team is working overtime to educate us, the public, about what they're doing with this mission. They have, like, stream of blog posts, up-to-the-date videos. It's It's really cool. Uh, and, and I, you know, honestly wish that we had had more time with it, but, uh, I took a good three or four hours with it to get us prepped to talk to Amy. So if you have, uh, you know, maybe some more ideas about OSIRIS-REx, or maybe, maybe there's a mission that NASA is doing that you think we should cover, or there's something more space related that you'd like us to cover. Cause we just did, uh, moons of Saturn. We've talked about Jupiter before. Uh, I personally would love to take a look at Mars's moon Phobos. Ah, uh, yeah, there are more moons out there, so yeah. you have to go check those out as well. But uh, if you got suggestions like that, or you just want to reach out to us, you can do that on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. All those platforms, pretty much our handle is Blow the Mind. It might be a little bit different, but you'll find us if you search for that. Uh, and you can always go to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That is the mothership where we have everything, every podcast, every video, every article that we work on on these things. Not to mention that those social media feeds have us sharing all the weird science stuff that we come across throughout the week as well. Indeed. And if you want to get in touch with us the old-fashioned way, if you want to hit us up with an email, you can find us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.